first chapter of Tongues is out, and um, I am serializing it myself, sort of self-publishing it in chapters. So the first chapter's out, um, and I just kind of want to make, uh, kind of let the world know that it exists. Yeah. Um, so on, this is kind of like a book tour on the first floppy? It is, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh-huh. So are, are you actually going to different cities? Yeah. It's a pretty low-key book tour, so I'm doing this thing here yeah. tomorrow, and then Portland next week, L.A. at the end of the end of September, uh, Minneapolis and sh- Chicago in October, uh, Seattle and Vancouver in November. You seem to be very proactive about it. I got an email from you a couple months ago. I know Heidi got the same one. I think she actually mm-hmm. like published it verbatim on her site, <laughs> but it's... I mean, I don't, I don't get that from a lot of, a lot of cartoonists. You know, maybe if they're kind of running their own publishing company, which I guess you are in a sense. Kinda, but, yeah. But you seem to be like really, you seem to be on top of this. Yeah, I'm trying to be. My partner Jackie is sort of remarkable for. She's she's helping me a lot with getting the word out, doing press and publicity and stuff. I probably couldn't do it in the same way without having her, without having an extra person, um, you know, just following through, writing emails, letting press know, and that's super helpful. But basically, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to figure out a way to make, like, a healthy living doing this without... Making comics. Doing, yeah, making comics. Um you know the book eventually will be out from pantheon in the meantime i you know i have the serialization rights and i'm uh sort of playing with putting it out myself little by little before the the whole thing is done um to make a living you know otherwise it's like in the past i've done some teaching i do some illustration but this sort of allows me to put the book out you know the the format's bigger and i can do some weird design stuff and and so that that's part of what makes it fun for me the decision to to serialize it was mostly financial well i also sort of come from i mean it's similar to what i did with big questions some of the design choices i'm making are probably not the ideal you know there's a difference between self-publishing and like I don't know what the word would be, but like mass market publishing, I want to be able to play with it. So like there's there's a weird insert that's a different format than every the rest of the book. It's kind of large, like I'm using nicer paper. I just like the ability to be able to play around and not and sort of not have financial concerns be a huge part of it. But then doing it myself means that that a larger percentage of the cover price comes back to me. It's, you know, it's a little bit of an experiment. It's like, I'm doing the first issue this way. We'll see what happens. Um, I expect to do the rest of the series, but if it's a giant flop, like maybe I won't. <laughs> I assume that big questions work, work differently. I, I sort of expect, I, I thought that that was something that, you know, maybe the decision to serialize it the way that it was serialized was made later. This is like clearly... You had a deal worked out with Pantheon from the beginning on this one. Uh, more or less. I mean, I, I was planning to serialize it regardless. But, um, but yeah, it was very important to me to reserve the serialization rights for it. 
and they're totally cool with the idea of you going out and, and doing this? Yeah, yeah, they're they're happy. I mean, I think, like I said, it's a little bit of a different market. So, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of works. It's like they have an infrastructure to, once the finished book is out, they have an infrastructure that I can't match. But but also, like, I'm I'm not going to probably go to Barnes and Noble and be able to find a floppy. That's correct. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if publishing companies in general or comics publishing, like larger, like, you know, your, your Pantheons or your Abrams are a little more open to this idea now since um, web comics have become so pervasive and, it, like, it's clear that you could actually kind of put out a product for free or have it out there in the world and people will actually still pay for the final version of it. Yeah, I think that that is a newish model, but I think comics pioneered that model even before the internet was what it is now. So like, uh, what black hole, you know, is a good, I think a good example. Or well, black hole or even like every, every like, you know, Marvel or DC comic out there. Right. I mean, sure. They're all floppies and then they end up being these trade paperbacks, but the difference being that the companies are making money on, on the, on the floppies as well. And you're like, you know, I'm, I'm taking this, this piece of the pie here. Right. And, and yeah, black hole was published by Fanographics and then Pantheon took it over or like Jimmy Corrigan, you know, was Fanographics and then Pantheon took it over. So like, there's definitely a, it's like there's a there's a sort of more intimate audience mm-hmm. of people who are sort of keyed into alternative underground whatever weird art comics who are I mean I don't know like who are paying attention and then that audience is actually small enough I think that yeah. a company like Pantheon can then actually do a pretty good business after the fact. Yeah, I mean this is something that's not going to fall in probably in this format it's not going to fall in the lap of a casual comics reader i hope that you know something that was super important to me in high school and like early college was the element of like discovering something that you'd never seen or never heard of and you just walk into a a shop or i guess now like find on the internet that you you have no context for it just looks kind of interesting and somehow pushes a button and you you know, you take a chance on it. And that kind of thing is super important to me. Like I want, I want to create a possibility for, for like a context free discovery. Do you think that that possibility works in a same or similar way on, on the internet? I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're totally right. The idea of like walking into a comic shop and just pulling a weird thing off the shelf and bringing it home with you. But is there, is there some analog to that kind of discovery online? I'm probably too old to know that for sure. <laughs> You've heard of this thing, the internet. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, I think it's like some friend of yours yeah. sends you a, you know, a screen grab from Instagram and it's it sort of like falls into a slot in yeah. the back of your brain and then you either, you go into a show, yeah. you go into a shop and see it or you come across it again somewhere else or some other friend of yours shows it to you like that kind of thing i mean whatever i'm doing the best i can to market this thing but i feel like what i want to do is is put it out in the world sort of in a way where people can discover it and have a have what feels like a real singular experience with something like this, it's so tied to the physical object. You know, there there does need to be some element of you 
I'm just seeing it for the first time and, and not surprisingly, given, you know, what you've done in the past, it's a, it's gorgeous and it's really big and, and, you know, the colors are really beautiful. I could see this popping off of a shelf, but you still sort of need that, that in person. I mean, that that's the power that this, this has. I mean, you could have theoretically, um, you know, you, you could have serialized it online. Right. I could. Which is a thing that people do now. That is a thing that people do now. And that, you know, that's another probably element of like, you know, the generation I'm a part yeah. of is like that just doesn't feel that satisfying to I me. Know. Like I'm I'm really interested in the object. I'm really interested in the way the thing unfolds sort of in your hands and like the way the paper feels and and like you said, the size. Yeah. Um you did like, just I don't like, I don't want somebody to sort yeah. of like, you know, be with their two fingers be magnifying it so they can read it or whatever, like on their phone, I, I want them to hold it in their hands. And I think like, from what I understand, that's sort of the strength of the graphic novel, uh, whatever industry or segment is like, while, while literature and books in general are sort of flatlining a little bit, I mean, maybe not so much now, but graphic novels have continued to, to climb because I think there is this inherent physicality that people it's like it just does it's just not really the same online you just spent however many hours with chip kid and he's he's definitely sort of a proponent of this as well we had him on the show a couple of years ago to talk about he put that peanuts book out which is very invested in the physical object art spiegelman who we were talking about earlier is definitely in that school as well to a point where there's sort of i feel like a lot of what kind of both of them are doing in a way are almost a pushback against the digital like making giving the physical object some sort of inherent value like going out of your way to do it in a format or you know some sort of creative you know you mentioned uh, like fold out some sort of thing that you can't necessarily do online in a way it sort of it challenges you to figure out what value you can imbue on this object that people can't get on an iPad. Right, absolutely. And I think that's that's something that's been true for the last couple hundred years. It's like when photography came along, it didn't make painting useless or pointless. It just made painting kind of have to reevaluate yeah. and like decide like what can we do? And the truth is like then painting started doing all kinds of crazy shit that it never had thought to it do before. It got more interesting, but it got a lot less lifelike right and i think that you know recorded music is probably the same way like what what digital is doing to literature and to comics is is not replacing it it's just forcing it to like decide what what are we really yeah like what what value do we really have how can we exploit it are you actively thinking about that especially when you're going out of your way to serialize this to present it in a, in a specific format. I mean, are you thinking about the sort of storytelling things that you can do on paper that you can't do online? Yeah. I mean, in a fairly simple way, you know, all the way through this, I'll be thinking about like, what is the final product going to be? You know, really it's like, it's kind of just mainly it's just the size, you know, there's simple things like the flaps and there's a little insert. So it's, it's nothing super crazy groundbreaking. It's just like, let's embrace the physicality of the book form when it comes to the mapping out does the size make that big of a difference yeah i mean i think it just is bigger (laughs) (laughs) like bigger is more fun in a way you know and and like 
eight and a half by eleven is actually big for comics, yeah. but it's really big for iPhones and iPads, yeah. which like more and more even people's laptops are getting cast aside for iPads and iPhones. So yeah, just having an object that's a little bigger and you know you can investigate detail a little closer. You know, you can have you. I guess that's the thing. You can have the the minute details and the whole at the same time. Yeah. With this book, whereas with an iPhone, you either zoom in and check out the detail, or you zoom out and check out the whole. But you kind of can't have both. I wonder if there's an analog in comics to you know the whole thing. The um, I think it might have been like Barry Gordy with Motown or Phil Spector when they used to. They, they would record the whole album and then they would take it and put it on a, a set of uh, car speakers. They would spend like, you know, however many in $1960 at the time doing these like beautiful, like gorgeous symphonic arrangements. And then if the thing didn't sound good on a set of car speakers, right. it right. was kind of worthless because that's how most right. of the people are going to be consuming it. And I, I've had this conversation with a, with a lot of filmmakers. I A number of years ago, interviewed a bunch of documentary filmmakers who just did these like, I don't know if you've seen like Samsara. It's just this like gorgeous visual documentary. And they despise the idea that like somebody was going to be watching it on one of those screens on the back of a, a plane seat. Right. But maybe, you know, maybe there is something to be said for creating something that can be consumed in different format. If your book comes out on, on Pantheon, is it also going to potentially have a life on comiXology? I mean, I'm I'm definitely not opposed to that. Like, at D&Q, I think I was one of the people that was pushing, one of the artists that was pushing them to figure out an electronic platform. Yeah. It's not because I think having people read my work on an iPhone is is like ideal, yeah. but I also don't think the i you know the ideal like whatever you don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good. So like several years ago, I was at a comic festival in Colombia, and the country, the country of yeah Colombia and South America, and like I found out three days before I went that they didn't have any of my books. <laughs> so like I filled up my bag with as many copies of big questions as I could carry, which was not that many <laughs> and uh, was a little disappointed. Like nobody, I'm going to be giving these talks and doing workshops and all this stuff. And nobody's going to be able to like read the book that I'm talking about. At some point in that trip, I talked to a a critic and he kind of like, winked and nodded and basically said like yeah they are because they'll just download a pdf Mm. my feeling was like okay so that's how that's how people are going to read it like realistically you know we live in a global world now so like if somebody wants to read my book in colombia or thailand or whatever like some kid somehow hears about it from so and so wants to read it they're probably not going to be stopped by the fact that shipping is going to cost, you know, $75. Mm-hmm. They're just going to figure out how to find it online. You know, I'm constantly getting Google alerts that, like, my books are available for free if you download such and such. So, like, I just felt like, okay, so 
at least I should I should make it available. Like yeah. I should have D and Q make it available if somebody is willing to like go there first and pay five bucks or pay 10, ten bucks or whatever it is, instead of just pirating it. You should make it available and also make sure that it's done in a way that's not terrible. You know that, exactly. That, that yeah, right. If like the option is either you know downloading a legal copy of it from you know like a Comixology or Kindle or whatever versus like somebody <laughs> you know taking it to a flatbed scanner and making their own version, like you want right. them to have the optimal reading or experience. having some super shitty low res PDF. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully something comes through that if somebody enjoys it in that format, that they're going to the next time they buy one of your books or even that copy of the book, maybe they'll actually. Right. Or if that kid's 12 years old and he like, he or she grows up to like, be like, all right, I want to start the first comic shop in, you know, whatever town in Cambodia. Like awesome. You know, like that. Cause that's the thing. Like when I was a kid discovering this stuff for the first time, the bad quality was part of the interest. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the, the zines that I was making in 1998, like were not printed well or whatever. Like they weren't perfect. We could see like where the the outline of the letter, where it was cut out. Yeah. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right. Where the, yeah, the cut and paste lines are like, you know, they were made on Xerox machines. I want to, you know, this book is printed in the best possible way that I can manage but the ideas and the story are are the are as important to me as like the physicality and the like perfection of the object or whatever do you think the fact that that a lot of what you do is is largely wordless has i mean that's kind of expanded your appeal globally to people who aren't native english speakers uh maybe i mean it's easier mm. right to like a, a lot of your work to pick that up and figure out what's going on if even if you don't understand yeah. the language i mean that's possible you yeah. know i don't know i mean uh, some of my stuff has been translated enough that that people are getting both i think it's possible you know that people in france or wherever have picked up an english version and sort of felt like yeah they could relate to it because there was a lot yeah. of non non-verbal i mean but, you know you talk about content france which which has a, a really great comics culture um, people have that that connection, and a lot of a lot of people speak English over there as well. Colombia is probably not the first country that I think of when I think about you know international comics communities. Or I don't know if you were pulling Cambodia out of thin air. Yeah, I was. Cam- okay. I was pulling Cambodia okay. out of thin air. <laughs> I mean, there is actually. I mean, there is a comics scene yeah. there that I'm vaguely aware of. But I mean, it sounds like it's it's kind of afforded you you know the opportunity to to travel around like you have had some reach you know well outside the u.s right dogs and water and big questions were recently acquired in china i still actually don't know for sure whether the books have come out or not yeah are you going to be able to get out there for that that would be fascinating i would love to yeah but i yeah i don't i don't know i don't know yet we were talking about uh german comic shops before and and i mean I, i love even even when you don't know the language just going into one of those stores and just seeing like how comics are presented, you know, going mainstream comics culture is very particular in the US. You know, you walk into a comic store and you know that unless it's like a desert island or one of these indie comic shops that it's going to be like superheroes, but it's it's completely different when you go to Europe. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, France definitely has its own version of the mainstream yeah. and there are shops that cater to that, which is like not superheroes, but it's like 
pirates and westerns yeah. and like spy stories like and like gay, weird like, elephant yeah. robots and whatever. <laughs> but yeah, like the each each country's sort of version yeah. of of independent comics is definitely interesting. I mean, a lot of countries feel like they're I feel like being aware of skateboard culture. Yeah. There's a similarity where for better or worse and like I don't want to be, you know, nationalistic about it or whatever, but there does seem to feel it does feel sometimes like certain countries are just like 10 years behind what passes for sort of alternative comics current alternative comics is like what did for us like 10 15 years ago but yeah i mean france is like fully developed like has a, has all kinds of weird shit and they're not at all dependent on other countries for the right culture. right right I mean, it's I very think, self-generated yeah, yeah i mean obviously like they do get a lot of English language books or translated books over there, but it's different dealing with a community where, you know, most of what they get are from other countries. Right. Where it feels right. like they're still kind of, you know, maybe attempting to develop. Right. So how long have you been in Portland for? Uh, just over one year. Oh, really? Yeah. Did you move from Minneapolis or was there... I moved from Minneapolis. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I was in Chicago until 2012 and then moved to Minneapolis uh kind of partly to do some teaching but you're from minneapolis i'm from there originally yeah. yeah so i was there for a little over four years in that time i met somebody in portland that ultimately proved worth moving for were you seriously entertaining the idea of moving to portland prior to that i mean it's sort of like no no not at all it's kind of one of those things where you're like well i guess like it's going to come to this at some point. Like I'm invariably going to have to move to Portland. That's just the way, uh, that's the way these things shake out. Yeah. My job's portable and a lot of yeah. people, you know, uh, my girlfriend's job was not portable. And yeah. so, yeah. And Portland's a nice city. It's beautiful. It's not, it's not, it doesn't get to be 20 below in the wintertime. So that's fair. And it, I mean, is it still is it still livable as a cartoonist? Uh, I'm sort of in the middle of determining that. Yeah. <laughs> but at the moment, yeah, we'll see, you know, what happens. You said you moved to Minneapolis for, for teaching. Are you doing any teaching out there? No, not okay. at the moment. Is that is is that something that's hard to come by or are you just are you just looking to do art full time? Um, I'm not trying to come by it. Okay. <laughs> I mean I feel like moment. I feel like for you, like given your experience in comics and the fact that you're a pretty well known name in that world, that it probably wouldn't be too difficult for you to get a teaching gig. I appreciate your vote of confidence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's things that I liked about teaching in general. I would rather just be drawing comics. Yeah. And I mean, so, so that's part of why this book is taking the form that it is. Like between this and doing some illustration and a little bit of this and a little bit of that, like I'm trying to kind of make a living doing it. You know, if it came down to teaching again, I'd probably be fine with that. But but my first choice is basically like drawing and making comics. At this point in your life, having done comics for as long as, as you have that, like the attempt to do comics full time feels like an experiment. <laughs> it's an experiment. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's an ongoing experiment. The results so far have arguably not been entirely what I ideally would like. And so I keep experimenting. <laughs> Insofar as like having to have other jobs, yeah, I mean, you know, the doing some illustration is absolutely necessary. Doing some teaching 
felt necessary for a while. It's not, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not getting rich doing this <laughs> by any means. Do you feel like you have to approach it like being a, a full-time job in, in your mind? I mean, are you one of those people that has to like, like for me, like, you know, we're doing this out of my office and I, that's, I could work from home if I wanted to, but I really, I need to like get on a train and go to the office and be here for a while and like set aside my office time and my right. not office time. Do you, do you have to, do you have to do that? Do you have to like give yourself a certain number of hours during the day? Do you have to like go to a special place to draw? I mean, until I moved to Portland, I, I worked out of my house, but I've, yeah, like I've definitely always treated it as like a 40 slash 50, yeah. 60 hour a week job. Um, you where set the I, alarm and well, I don't necessarily <laughs> set an alarm. Like I don't set an alarm, but yeah. I get up. I mean, now basically an alarm is set. Like I'm, you know, my girlfriend has kind of a like nine to five, nine to six kind of job and I want to, you know, have a reasonable life. So I try to basically roughly match her schedule. Um, you know, up to that point before that, like I would just get up when I got up, but then I would work until, you know, 11 o'clock or midnight or whatever. Like there's no end. It's like, if you're self-employed, there's no, clocking out you're just you just work until you can't anymore that's the downside of of freelancing that they that they don't tell you you know everyone talks about all the freedom and everything i got laid off from a a job a couple years ago and was forced to freelance and everyone's like this is great you're gonna love it like you can go to the movies in the middle of the day and like i can't i can't do it it's the same thing you know i was i was living with a girlfriend for a while and she would get up and go to work and then i I was lying in bed. I would feel like this this horrendous oh, sense yeah. of guilt. I was like oh, driven. Yeah. I was driven by the fact that like I felt like like a useless piece of garbage if I wasn't right. like constantly working. Right. Because there's no yeah. It's like there's no paycheck coming. Yeah. You just have to make it yeah. happen yourself. And and like you know, the truth is like I make a living basically drawing and writing funny stories like i can't really complain too much about that the other downside of of doing something creative too you know i've I've talked to a lot of songwriters about this is even if you go out of your way to set very specific hours that idea of you know having something kind of be a 24 7 job isn't just because you're freelancing but also the fact that you have to wait for that to strike, you know, and you have to like draw inspiration from the world. And like, in a sense, like you're kind of always working. You never know when you're going to get an idea. There's no clear division between like work and life. I'm sure that it's maybe a little bit different in the comics creating process because there's, I mean, for you, is is there a distinct like storyboarding period and a scripting period and then you go and draw the book or... Are the lines a little I mean, bit blurred? I mean, I have to... That doesn't come super naturally to me, yeah. but but it is very useful. So I kind of have to force myself to do that a little bit because it's very inefficient to just start drawing. Yeah. You know, to have like an idea and a vague notion and just start drawing pages. That's a terrible w- way to go about it. Was that what you did early on? That's what I did at the beginning of Big Questions. And truthfully, this first issue of Tongues kind of there was an aspect of that where 
I was sort of just plowing ahead and then realizing like, oh, wait, I have to adjust this dialogue. Oh, wait, I have to like add a, add a bunch of panels here. So now that the first issue is done, I'm going to be taking some more time to like actually sit down and write a script um, and probably do some pretty thorough thumbnailing before before I, I start drawing and stuff. Tongues is a lot more involved than anything I've done before, partly just because it's full color, but also like the the plot and the number of characters and everything is just like more more complex and involved than anything I've done. An aspect of setting those parameters for, for yourself is probably just like you keeping sane and making sure that this thing doesn't, you know, balloon up to, I mean, you've done some really long books before, but, you know, making sure that it's sustainable and that it's something you can actually deal with. But at the same time, do, do you feel like adding those those constraints and scripting out a little more strictly has an impact on the storytelling for better or for worse? For better, yeah, because it just... Because it it allows revision. Yeah. You know, it's like your first impulse in a way is your best impulse because, mm-hmm. like, the idea is super fresh. Yeah. But with something like, you know, this is basically a novel, like, th- there's a lot of interlocking pieces. They all have to work together. So, like, your first impulse is great, and then you have to make sure it jibes with the first impulse on this other plot thread yeah that is very important and like the way that two characters talk about a third character has like all the storylines have to work out and like you know i don't i mean whatever it's like complicated and and (laughs) and you know i've done a lot of i've done like eight books or nine books and they've mostly been fairly simple even big questions was like there were like three main characters, but they were all birds. Yeah. Like, you know, it was fairly straightforward. Yeah. And they all kind of looked. They all looked exactly same. the same. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's what I wanted to do, but this is definitely like a am biting off a much bigger yeah. thing here. Yeah. How were you able to be that loose on, on the first issue if you had scripted such complex interlacing storylines ahead of time? I hadn't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me put it this way then. Like what what did the story look like? What was your like big picture idea for the book when you first started? My big picture idea. I had done a little very short story about Prometheus in Rage of Poseidon. And having done that, I was really interested in his story. Yeah. The Greek myth of Prometheus steals a fire. Steals fire from the gods yeah. for humanity, who he has created. He's the creator of humanity. The gods get pissed off yeah. that he steals fire, and they they chain him to a mountain. And an eagle comes every day and eats his liver, which then grows back because he's a god. So whatever. I mean, that is interesting to me. But but the the little piece that I did in Rage of Poseidon kind of mentioned his relationship with the eagle Mm -hmm. so like this eagle comes every single day so it's the only other being that he has an interaction with so i it's it's different than sisyphus and the rock right i mean sisyphus just deals with a 
a, a rock every day. And he's actually yeah, so like, this is, the story is a little simpler. This is sort of like that Looney Tunes, the coyote and the sheepdog with they chase each other right. around and they would like check, they would like clock in and clock out yeah, every day. Yeah, exactly. So they had like a little bit exactly. of a sort of a business, you know, when they're off hours, they were totally cool with each other. Right. They're adversaries and yet. It's our job to be adversaries. Yeah, or like Batman and the Joker, actually, yeah. having just been in Chip Kid's apartment. So, yeah, I was really interested in that. There's something very odd about, yeah. you know, somebody who's coming to torture you every day. But, like, by default, they kind of have to be your best friend also. So that was interesting to me. I had done a Sisyphus story, which which was, an, you know, another Greek myth story that was super interesting to me that kind of stuck with me and made me want to revisit it. I've done a lot of reading about human evolution, and because Prometheus is the supposed creator of humanity, like, it becomes a sort of interesting way to potentially talk about human evolution and human nature and the origins of language. I think those are kind of the main strings yeah. that come together in the story. Really, the idea was just you wanted to expand upon Prometheus and that relationship between the two of them. Yeah, in the sim- yeah stated in the yeah. most simple way. Yeah, right. And then you know, then there were other threads. It's like there was this thing with um, dogs and water, which was actually the first book that I had published several years ago. Somebody approached me about doing a feature film based on dogs and water, which never happened. But based on those conversations, I wrote a, I wrote a script, and I had to expand the story a little bit. And there were some scenes that also just kind of stuck with me, and I wanted to realize, like, I didn't want them just to be, you know, in a shelf or on a hard drive or whatever, as that no one would ever see. Um, there were some new characters and this new sort of situation that I wanted to to play with so for a long time i sort of thought like could this thing connect with you know the prometheus thing um the answer was never quite yes but never quite no and so i i've sort of just like shoved them together and now i'm gonna see what happens i wonder if doing a first issue this way is kind of a necessary part it sounds like some of you're kind of trying to exercise from your system and being be a little bit more orderly from the outset but this is definitely a way to kickstart the creative process to actually just sit down and start doing it yeah i mean i think for me like that often is sort of the way it works is like you just throw a bunch of stuff down yeah with you know probably without really knowing where it's going and then you have a bunch of stuff and so you those are like these kind of like obstacles that you then have to navigate around and like connect them to make a you know you you sort of want to give yourself some problems to solve yeah. you know it's that that old idea of like creativity loves constraint yeah so those those things are sort of my constraint through this issue i like thought about these things for a couple of years and then like put this first issue out and now i have this little weird structure that i have to from here try to make coherent and compelling to me that's always been the most rewarding part of writing is finding the connections between things that don't seem related until you kind of work out that math problem right right where is the connection between the unconnected things i mean that's you know it's like it's the oldest sort of i think it's just how our brains work it's like you you see patterns and you make meaning whether the meaning is pre-existing or not finding faces you find it yeah right exactly 
this is a way to do it without turning back. You know, this is a way to, to for better or for worse, to commit yourself to it. Because that's the biggest thing I think that trips everyone up in the creative process is, is you know, second-guessing themselves. I mean, we've all, like, gone a little bit into the way of something and scrapped it because it seemed like a bad idea. But once you, right. like, once you actually sit down and once you're committed to doing this first issue, you know, I mean, I, I guess you could scrap it. But you're pretty much, you seem like somebody who has yeah. a lot of follow-through. I mean, it's just like, whatever, you're alive, like, sure, yeah. maybe it is a bad idea, but let's see where this bad idea goes. How awesome would it be if I could turn a bad idea into a really great idea? Yeah. <laughs> it's like when I was in high school going skateboarding downtown Minneapolis and getting chased by security guards. If you could get the security guard to see your side, like if, you know, he comes out yelling at you and if you can, like, turn him to, like, being cool with you, and like giving you one more try at your trick. Yeah. That was that was the best. And I feel like this is sort of the same way. It's like you just give yourself a bunch of problems and then like if you can turn them into a good story or like a good novel or whatever, like that's that's like the best victory in a way. Part of the appeal was that these two things didn't naturally work with one another yeah sure like i wasn't i'm not sure i'm not i wasn't sure i'm still not 100 percent sure what are those what are those what are those things we're talking about that don't the dogs and water story yeah and i just feel like prometheus talking in abstractions but like what are the so like basically like i mean dogs and water had its kind of like weird magical realist element to it of a kid wandering around in the middle of nowhere talking to a teddy bear (laughs) there's no explicit like magic or fantasy element to it but it's sort of implied so it's kind of it's kind of on the realist end of my work i guess whereas like once you've got gods and talking eagles that's kind of uh pretty solidly in the fantasy camp so can I make those two things, hmm. can I make those two worlds the same world? Can I make them work together? The problem is the, what level of fantasy exists in this world? Right. And then also a huge part of what's interesting to me about it is to talk about human evolution and language. So that also is like super grounded in science. Like I want to be true to the to the actual i mean it's a it's a sort of a young science like it's not super Mm -hmm. super like delineated yet but i want to be true to what is actually understood and agreed upon but i'm using a god to talk about it so like that doesn't make any sense so like how do i make those two things you know something that's like super grounded in in a sci- in a super scientific worldview jibe with like the person who's explaining it to you as a god that's really interesting i think as people i mean i know as people we're really good at compartmentalizing you know and religion is a good thing i think people are particularly good at compartmentalizing sure and there are people that i think have made peace with believing for some people it's picking and choosing science and not believing in the science that doesn't jibe with your particular religious belief. I had a um, a twenty minute Uber ride uh, the day of the eclipse, and 
for some reason, I ended up having to explain evolution to the driver. Like he was really curious. He was a religious guy and he was asking about science and he was basically like asking me how the eclipse worked and I was trying to explain it as best I could. He basically told me why he didn't believe certain things and he he started talking about evolution and he asked me to explain it. I ran into the whole issue of like, I think I... I think I have a pretty good hold on this. I'm not like, <laughs> right. I'm not entirely right. sure. Yeah. You know, it's like there, there are certain leaps of faith that you have to have in science when you don't know right. on the molecular level. But then the flip side of that is like um, intelligent design is a thing. Like people have had an interesting ability to pick and choose a science that, that fits in with their particular worldview. I think these two things can exist together but i guess if you really really want to be true to the science then you have to kind of get rid of the whole you know gods on mount olympus well hopefully not because (laughs) i'm not but yeah (laughs) but yeah part of me is like how much do i want to explain yeah my book to my readers sure especially since like it hasn't been written yet yeah I think it's useful to have, like, I think the the thing about religion that I do like is I think for myself as a small individual human, I think it's useful to be able to tell yourself a story to conceptualize your relationship with the universe. Yeah. So, like, for a lot of people, that means, like, what is my relation to Jesus or to God or whatever? You know, I think that's like an, you know, there are only imperfect metaphors for conceptualizing your relationship to the universe. Religion is one of those imperfect metaphors. Imperfect, but also useful. Um, And so the idea for me, like the idea of having, creating a character who can explain how the universe works to a mortal person is just like a really interesting idea. The idea that the universe has like a coherent spokesperson. Yeah. By the nature of that position, that person would have to be some kind of omnipotent. Right, right. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it could be a book yeah, <laughs> or, or a guru in India that just got arrested or whatever. Uh, but yeah, sure. Why not? Why not take an existing structure of like Greek mythology? Yeah. Maybe I've just been thinking of Kirby this week because you know it was like his hundredth hundredth birthday um, oh. yesterday. But uh, yeah, the idea of uh, the Watcher was always an interesting one to me. Like you know they've got um, right, they've got all these like huge galactic world devouring gods. You know he's got right. Galactus, who's literally the devourer of planets, and then there's just this race of creatures whose job it is to just kind of watch over things and right. chronicle. I've never really gone that deep into the mythology, but you know, I don't know if they even really have an end game. Right. Or like how deep did Kirby get yeah. into it? You know, like I feel like that's one of the things about those movies. I mean, that was one of the things that was interesting about superhero comics in the late eighties when I was coming to eight coming of age is like, there were a few people that were sort of like, well, wait a second. What are, what's the, what are the implications of like yeah. this stuff, yeah. you know, of like people with superpowers or like omnipotent beings or whatever. Yeah. Like there was some people, you know, Frank Miller and Alan Moore and whoever Watson were like and, playing. Yeah. yeah. We're like playing with this, I- yeah. that idea of like, like this is 
and I feel like that's when I watch, you know, even now, like you go to the Avengers movies or you read that stuff now and it's like, like, yeah, what are the implications of this? Yeah. Super interesting. Haven't actually, people haven't gone that deep into like what the implications of these weird fantasies are. You're able to, you know, maybe take a similar approach with the, the idea of Greek mythology. Right. There are like subtle nuances that don't really come out in the story. And there are a lot of interesting avenues that you can explore from there. Right. Yeah. And sort of like extrapolating like omnipotent evil or whatever, you know, what would it mean? You know, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's, those stories have lasted for 2000, 3000 years for a reason. Like they are compelling and, and they are the sort of like the foundation of like storytelling in the West also. So like they, those stories sort of suffuse, you know, poetry and painting and like all this stuff. So yeah, they're they're sort of endlessly fascinating to me. As far as actually writing and drawing, how how far into this are you? First book's out. First book, forty eight pages. Uh, I have three more pages drawn, which may or may oh, not wow. get so you're get uh... <laughs> torn up and thrown in the bin. I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, so you really are sort of like flying by the seat of your pants on this one at this point. Yeah. So uh, so I've started scripting. I mean, I have a giant chart on my wall yeah. of the whole of the whole plot. I'm picturing one of those, uh, you know, when they have like the uh, like a detective show and they've got the um, <laughs> yeah. suspects and like the pieces of yarn. Yeah, yeah. How does the lowest level drug dealer yeah. connect to Zeus? Yeah, I have a lot of post its. Yeah. Do you expect that it's going to change considerably? Yeah. yeah. Within within limited within a limited scope, I guess. Yeah. Given the fact that you just have one book done and a few pages drawn beyond that i mean do you feel like this is heading in a good direction yeah i'm super excited about it as far as like it being a kind of successful experiment yeah so far i mean you know to me it sort of feels like this is the you know big questions when i started big questions i didn't really know what i was doing and i sort of was like learning how to make comics the whole way through part of what is fun and exciting about this is like I feel like, okay, I'm starting something equally as ambitious or more so, but I kind of like, I think I kind of know what I'm doing now. So yeah, I mean, whatever, that's like, that's exciting to me. It, I'm still, I'm still struggling. Like, like I said, the, the little birds that make questions were super easy to draw. Like just figuring out how to make an eagle over and over again and a little monkey and stuff is like, surprisingly difficult <laughs> yeah drawing is hard is that why the little birds ended up becoming such a a prominent part of the book was that it was just something easy to draw over and over again i wouldn't say it's why they became i mean it's why i it's why that book started yeah yeah i mean it, it was it was integral to that book it was like they were so easy i could i could sort of easily imbue them with personalities without having to worry too much about how to draw you know how how they're holding their arms and like what kind of clothes are they wearing and how's their hair done and all that stuff it was like i think that's part of why why animals are sort of attractive characters in comics and children's literature is like they can kind of be pretty straightforward yeah so the issue here is really duplicating it is drawing it over and over again and maintaining like consistency yeah and like something like an eagle like it's just an eagle and like in my head, I sort of thought like, oh, I know what an eagle looks like. That's easy. I found out I actually don't really. 
feathers are very complicated. Yeah. Says the guy who has already drawn a giant book <laughs> right. about birds. And, it, and, you know, it's a character with dialogue, so, like, its posture has to be yeah. convincing and, you know, the look in its eye has to be convincing. This talking like, eagle has to be convincing. Yeah, right. Uh, and the same with the, the monkey. Like, the way it feels has to be conveyed through the way it's yeah. looking at, you know, whatever character is talking to it or whatever. But, you know, whatever. That's just comics. That's, like... That's just the medium. Yeah. But I, you know, with big questions, I kind of took a shortcut and just drew a bunch of little birds that all look the same. So does it feel like rolling the same boulder up a hill day in, day out? It's a bigger boulder, I think. Yeah. (laughs) When you've kind of committed yourself to something, I mean, it must be, it's that thing of like running a marathon, you know, for the, in a sense, like the first couple of miles are often the hardest. Right. I'm, I'm aware that the first issue is probably like by far the hardest. Like, yeah figuring out the color figuring out like who each character is like how they how to draw them over and over again like all that stuff like now i kind of have most of that stuff under my belt and i can just move forward and tell the story smooth sailing from here on out yeah well we'll see hopefully There you go, that was Anders Nilsson. This is actually the second time we've had him on the show. The last time was recorded at San Diego Comic-Con. He showed me a spot, like a little patch of grass out behind the convention center where we did the interview and where I ended up actually hosting uh, most of the interviews that I did at that show. But um, extremely chaotic. We were just sitting there and there were people in in cosplay running around in these little... um, pedicabs playing uh, pop music out the back so I'm glad that we had a chance to sort of sit down and and have a much more uh, thoughtful and quiet conversation this time out about his new book Tongues the first issue of which is out now he is putting it out as a floppy on his own and it will be anthologized by Pantheon when all of those are out thanks so much to him for taking the time to do that thanks to you guys as always for listening to the program if you liked the show there are a couple of ways to support us the cheapest and easiest way is to rate us on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts uh we also have a patreon if you want to throw a couple of bucks our way we're actually losing money doing the show at this point because uh that's the fun world of podcasting like us on facebook follow us on tumblr that's rylcast.tumblr.com that is a first and best place to get all of your R-I-Y-L related information you can uh, send us an email it's rylcast at gmail.com if you have any feedback and I think that's about all I got for this week so stick around because we'll be back just about this time next week with another episode of R-I-Y-L